versus the world productions getting our geek on 24 7 365 shut up baby i know it vtwproductions.com hi folks this is the emperor i'm here to remind you to listen to the emperor's court right here at vtwproductions.com that's the emperor's court your three-hour break from internet porn here we go. Jamie Bamber from Battlestar Galactica. Let him know you're happy to see him. Woo! Is this working? Yeah. Well, they kept me out of this room for three days, and finally I got you all up here. Um, I probably met each and every one of you two or three times, and you've probably asked me two or three questions, so I'm not sure what there is left to say, but I'm thrilled to be here. I've had a great time in Phoenix. Um, and uh, this is always my favorite part of these uh, conventions. I love the dialogue that we can all have together, a group discussion. So um, what, I, what I really enjoy is, is hearing your questions, your thoughts, and bouncing uh, stuff back on them, and then I'll ramble on for ages and hopefully uh, crack a few jokes while I do it. Um, but uh, I've had a great weekend, and uh, let's just get going. Let's just ask a few questions, and let's get this conversation. Hey, that's better. Much better. Wow. <laughs> um, were you all here for the Star Trek panel that just was on? How was that? They're a nice bunch. We went for a curry. Uh, I went for a curry with them the other night. They included me in their, in their fabulous world. And they're, they're a super bunch of people, I've got to say. What a nice bunch. And there's, I mean, I, I'm here alone. My Battlestar family didn't come with me, so I feel like a bit of an orphan. <laughs> you are my Battlestar family. Correct. <laughs> the right answer. <laughs> Correct. Um, and, uh, yeah, and by the way, I've... Instead of signing back down there, if any of you have left and haven't had a signature and want one, because I've got to rush off to the airport, we're going to do it right here afterwards. I've got all the photos and all that kind of junk. So anything you want, you can lighten my load so that Southwest Airlines don't sting me with a surcharge, okay? <laughs> You'll be doing myself a favor. All right, first question. Lady in grey. I think it's you at the front. Yeah, come on. Well, in, in my life, uh, not really, I mean, sort of, because I live in America, and sometimes when I'm in a restaurant, I say things like, I'd love a glass of water, and the waitress will just look at me with a blank look on her face, um, and uh, then I have to adjust and say, I'd like a glass of water. <laughs> and then they get it, and it always reminds me of a story that my, my, my eldest daughter, Isla, who will be nine next week, um, is, uh, oh, well. You can clap for his daughter. Well, congratulations, Isla, wherever you are. I know where you are. Um, um, but she's, uh, I'm very proud to say, bilingual. Um, in the most useless way. Um, and uh, she goes to school. She's entirely American. She comes home. She's entirely British. And uh, once when she was three, when she was entirely American, we hadn't ever lived in London together, um, she was going to bed and she said, Daddy could I have a glass of water? And I said, Isla, there's a tea in water. And she thought for a second and said, Daddy, could I have some tea in my water? <laughs> and she likes a cup of tea, does Isla. So um, anyway, yeah, welcome to my world. We're, we're sort of caught in an Anglo-American um, hybrid universe. But um, uh, the other thing that happens to me occasionally is I do voiceovers, and they always say, they always want a mid-Atlantic accent, which I have no idea, you know, 
what that is. Somewhere in Madeira or the Azores, perhaps. It's like Portuguese English. I don't know where the mid-Atlantic people live. Um, most of them, I, I would thought, are drowned. Um, <laughs> and I always struggle with that accent when I need to do it, but I think I do have a kind of mid-Atlantic thing going on when I have to make myself understood, but that's, yeah, good question. Hey. Well, I remember the first wow moment. Um, I mean, there were so many, but when I first, when the penny first dropped that we were sort of holding a less than flattering mirror up to our Western society. Um, and the first moment of that was when, you know, when I suddenly realized that these silence were talking about monotheism in a way that really, you know, could, could be, um, you know, in the, in the Christian, Judeo-Christian world, you know, uh, the, the way most of us talk about our God, and they're the bad guys. And I just thought that was so bold on, on American television, which normally is so careful not to offend its audience. And uh, Ron and the writers were just sort of brazen about trying to make us examine ourselves and have a good look at ourselves, you know, and uh, and then the other moment, the, the, the other famous moment was when the sympathetic characters turned into suicide bombers at the same time that we were in Iraq. And obviously we were facing a lot of that. And, you know, great drama has always been about putting you, the audience, uh, in a position to believe something that is the opposite of what you actually believe so that you can experience life through someone else's eyes. And I don't think we do that enough as people. And drama started as a sort of quasi-religious Greek sort of uh, ritual. And drama's become very kind of, uh, you know, it's become entertainment. And we don't really think of it very seriously anymore. But it's there for a real serious purpose, which is to empathize with someone that you otherwise would not empathize with. And I think our show did that almost better than any other show. You know, you, you found yourself rooting for Cylons against human beings at certain points. And, um, uh, you know, that, that's really powerful. And I, I don't think it's any secret that, uh, you know, a lot of um, uh, right-wing sort of political viewpoint audience members found a lot that they agreed with in the show. At the same time, that very liberal, very left-wing, you know, socialists found, you know, lots that they could... Uh, and everyone thought the show was sort of broadcasting their point of view, which I think is so clever. And they, you know, these guys managed to pull that off. The, the wow moments for me were t tended to be those moments where you had this shiver of, oh my God, I can't believe Ron just did that. Um, and he did it so many times. Thank you. Thank you. Hi there. Thank you for coming to Phoenix. You're quite awesome. Oh, bless you. So are you. Great voice. Oh my God, I'm going to stand up. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, you could teach them a thing or two, I would have thought. You could do movie trailers. You could do really good movie trailers. There you go. <laughs> Woo! Thank you. Wow. I feel good. Um, as my friend Edward James Olmos uh, would say, hit me with the dark. Okay. At the Battlestar finale, right, a lot of stuff has happened peripheral 
blows her own head off. It's going to be a dominant play. Uh, and the love of your life disappears without a trace. I know. And my question is, what possible motivation, despite having escaped the Cylons, would your character have for going on on this planet when you, your character literally has lost everything? Yeah, I know. Rude, right? <laughs> I mean, the first one was where we are on a great date. Everyone's happy, feeling good. Bit of a rapprochement after some, some marriage issues. And uh, say goodbye. Perfectly satisfying kiss. Good night. She walks into her bedroom and blows her head off. Yeah. Um, no, I think the overwhelming message from, from the show is just how amazingly resilient human beings are. And how, yes, we have hearts. Yes, we bleed when we are, you know, uh, cut. And uh, it hurts. Um, but we have this amazing, uh, amazingly noble and cap capacity for dignity and, and to, to make sense of nonsense. And if, it, if the show was about anything, it was about the human ability to create sense out of nonsense. Um, and, you know, I, I suppose Lee, better than most, was able to do that. You know, he, 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 he holds himself together when all around him, those that he loves are disappearing and dying and questioning him and, uh, and all the rest of it. And, you know, he, he, he's tough in that way, tougher than Starbuck, who appears all, you know, swagger and the perfect Viper pilot and, you know, never, you never lets anything get to her. But of course, you know, she doesn't have the, the tools to deal with her, her, her fragility and her, her worries about her own identity and all the rest of it. And, you know, Lee actually does. Lee's had to question him, himself his whole life. Uh, she never did. She was in the right milieu for herself. You know, she was born to do what she was doing, and Lee was born into a life that he questions from day one. Um, so I think, you know, with Lee's marriage choices and then not going so well and the unfortunate incident of the suicide after a great final date, um, uh, you know, he, he's able to, to put that together. And uh, the ending for me was beautiful because Ron chose to do the one thing that uh, is always resident which is going back to the start and in a show like Battlestar with the refrain you know all this has happened before and all this will happen again the way he was able to like a good symphony you know bring it round and have you sort of with the same musical motifs that we opened the whole saga with and you see the people from beginning to end and you see that they're the same people they've been on this crazy ass journey but they're able to, to be dignified in human beings, the, the successful ones. And uh, those are the ones that survived and ended up on that planet and making educated choices about the way they wanted to live their lives in peace, hopefully, from then on out. Uh, what's the dumb question? Come on, funny one. Uh, I was actually wondering if I could uh, take a picture of you and uh, text it to my friend. Who's, uh, she's currently reading Fifty Shades of Grey. Wants something nice to look at. <laughs> You may well fold your arms after asking that question, sir. I know, I know the book of which you speak. I know, this is salacious. Go ahead. <laughs> Holding my mic. Oh, my God. Holding my microphone. I, I, w I won't. All right. Nice meeting you. 
So other cons are probably going to hear about that story, right, when you go to those. <laughs> Next uh, question. Yeah, yeah, I will be hearing that. Because that was very... No, not going to do that again. What do you do to them? Kidnap them? Pl plastic off them down? That's 77 hours worth of like... No, it's, it's cool. I, I make them watch it because they'll be like, I don't get it. I was like, just watch it, please. And, and look at these. It's cool. Um, but I have to say, oh, he's really cool. I get it. And I said, you know he's British, right? And their eyes go like, prove it. So I get the interviews out. So hopefully that will get you more fans. Oh, bless you. That's right, yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, yes, now we can both that too. Um, but coming from Battlestar Galactica and going to Ron Order UK, did you find the storytelling differences a, a bit abrupt to go to? Because it, even though we all speak English, <laughs> it, it is a different sense in the UK from how they tell their stories versus how we do it here in North America. Um, yeah, that wasn't the real, uh, that's what attracted me to it, was, was part of going back to the UK with the great American. Um, iconic show like uh, Law and Order, and um, and because that had never been done before. I mean, Americans remake a lot of British product, but the reverse never happens because we just consume the original American product without having to sort of adapt it to our own cultural context because we're quite familiar with yours. Um, so the uh, that was an attraction, but uh, I. You know, storytelling-wise, I, I think it was very much in the mode of the American show. We just had some cultural nuances, which were a bit different, which I'm obviously quite familiar with, so that wasn't, wasn't really an issue. The big change for me was from doing serialized TV to very episodic procedural TV, and how dry that is, and how sort of... Like, uh, one of the great joys of being on Battlestar Galactica was getting a, a brown envelope with a new script in it and wondering where the story's going to go. I mean, before Battlestar, I'd never done any more than eight episodes, I don't think, of anything. So you kind of knew where the character was going to go before you started. The beautiful thing about Battlestar is like reading a really long novel over many months, and you, you know, you'd look forward to going to bed so you could you know, read the next chapter, and you didn't know where this character was going to go, that you would live, you would live it out. And, and then by the end, of course, you had all these memories, real memories, of, of living out all the past experience of this character. You didn't have to... You know, when you do a movie, you create a backstory for yourself. You imagine it. You sort of try and make it as real as possible. But we didn't have to do that with Battlestar because I'd actually been there. I stood there. I, I you know, committed mutiny, and I remember what it felt like. I was thrown in jail. I remember what that felt like. I was slapped by a girl, punched by a girl with a clenched fist. I remember what that felt like. So it, it was all real. Um, and with Law and Order, every episode is a hermetically sealed, you know, beginning to end hell of a story. It's much more of a producer's medium. Than, than an actor's medium. Because, you know, Brad and I, uh, who I love to death, and he's a very funny, he's a comedian uh, first and foremost, so he had us laughing all day long, and he made the show fun, but the actual scenes are very repetitive, and I never had to learn a scene, very rarely learn a scene before going to set that day, because the questions were all pretty obvious, but where were you between the hours of X and Y? When, when did you last see Z? And um, how did that make you feel? Uh, bum bum. You know, so... <laughs> The challenge of the show was, was actually um, you know, creating a humanity with, with Brad, which was very largely 
non-verbal. You know, it's into, to, you know, the shtick with him eating all the time and me rolling my eyes or whatever it was. Um, so it's a completely different challenge. You know, Battlestar was this epic, sprawling saga where one week you'd be in, in some triangular love affair hell, the next week you'd be in jail, the next week you'd be flying in Viper courtroom, uh, president, um, you know, whatever it was, boxing matches. Uh, Law and Order was in a suit in an office, walking down roads, asking people questions. So, and it never really changed. So it's a tough one to keep fresh, but I had a great co-star, so that really made it special. Absolutely. Um, do you want to see? Oh, I have to jump down. Absolutely. Tight jeans. I went shopping in New York at the upfronts last week and went into Diesel and came up with these things which are basically sprayed on. Okay. <laughs> Oh, yes, you did, yeah. He's a wag. But anyhow, I love to hear stories from on set, funny gags, pranks, whatnot. Most memorable moments Oh, my God. Uh, well, uh, one of the funniest, it was sort of not really the set, but um, uh, some of you will know that actually when we were shooting, uh, Universal, uh, NBC Universal was owned by General Electric. And um, as such, we uh, came under General Electric's sort of corporate um, policies on sexual harassment and the like. And the thing about a film set is, you know, it's, it's very uh, co-ed. So there's men, women doing all sorts of different jobs, dressed in all sorts of different ways, often shooting risque scenes where people are almost naked, lying next to each other in a bed or whatever. So, you know, sexuality is kind of sort of everywhere. And they showed us this video, um, which was from a factory floor somewhere, probably in Cleveland, with these guys in hard hats, looking at the one female on the, on the assembly line. And the guy's like taking out his, hey, you like my banana? And provocatively peeling a banana. And then there was a big video, and these NBC brass were up there very seriously, all the lawyers and stuff, making sure we paid attention to the guy going, you like my banana? <laughs> and then, of course, in the front row is Olmos <laughs> with a big banana. <laughs> Peeling his banana, taking the piss out of this whole thing. And, of course, the NBC brass can't tell Edward James Olmos off, but he stands up, turns to everyone, anybody want my banana? <laughs> And that's Eddie, you know, he's, he's such a jokester, like nobody really realizes how, but at the same time, you know, he, he understands that this is a serious issue, but it's just a great example of the massive corporate world just not understanding the difference in nuance between one workplace and another, where, you know, um, you know we're, we're just hugely co-ed and everything that we do is sort of male, female, blah, 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 and we're all quite comfortable with it, but there are still boundaries, but that's not the way maybe to educate us with hard hats and <laughs> assembly lines. <laughs> Thank you. Hi, Jamie. Um, I have a more serious question, but it won't be too much of a downer. Um, no. There was one particular episode that, of Battlestar that, um, that really stuck out for me, and it was, uh, uh, I believe, the second season of the original 
Yeah. Wonderful pricey, by the way. That's exactly what happened. Yeah, you know, it, it, I, I, I really enjoyed doing the episode because uh, part of the battle, the ongoing, not battle, but the ongoing sort of thing that I struggled with a, a bit with Leah Dahmer is to uh, avoid, avoid the Boy Scout thing because, you know, he is kind of the clean-cut ideal um, of service and duty and all this sort of stuff, even though he feel, feels in the wrong skin and you can see that he's got issues with his own upbringing and, and, and the like. So, you know, the writers and I were always quite keen to sort of surprise the audience and show him in a different light. And I, I thought it was really cool to... The wonderful thing about Galactica is you think you're seeing everything that goes on in the fleet week in, week out. But of course, it's 50,000 people, of which we're following maybe 20. So it's lovely when we got to little corners, other corners of this ramshackle fleet and saw what was really going on. And it, I just thought it was great that Lee was having this sort of strangely honorable but slightly sordid affair with a prostitute and paying her, but also feeling some sort of duty to this child. So it, it encapsulated Lee really well, I thought, which is that, yes, he's, he's a human being, he's not perfect, and yet he's still, even though he does something which many people wouldn't agree with, he's trying to do it in the most sort of honest and chivalrous way that he knows how to do. And, you know, these are strange situations, you know, with the end of the world and the one person that he should be with is the last person that he's with and all the rest of it. So he, and, and I love that this was going on while you're watching all the other episodes. You know, this is a sort of background episode that you haven't been party to. So, I, you know, I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the playing of it. I don't think it's the greatest episode that we did. Um, you know, the, the whole child slavery thing is so dark and I'm not sure we really acknowledged how dark, you know, that sort of goings on in the fleet would be. Um, but I, 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 I loved the attempt. You know, the great thing about our show is we, we tried everything. We tried to do a bit of everything. And um, some of the episodes really sing, and some of them, you know, clunk along and aren't perfect. And I'd say that was probably one of them, but it was a great, um, you know, I, I just, uh, we, we, weren't, we weren't scared. We weren't scared. Yeah, yeah, it's an old clunker that we make do with. Yeah, exactly. Oh, as a parent, yeah, oh, as her always, um, you know, as a parent, uh, the one, uh, I, I, my abiding memory of becoming a parent is suddenly being uh, opened to a world of terror, you know, y y you have this sort of immediate kind of expansion of your heart that happens, but with that comes immense capacity for pain and, and suffering, and, and it's, it, it's hopefully just potential suffering. You know, I, I, you hope it's never really realized, and, and you know, one thing as an actor is you, 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 you sort of do realize it in the imagining uh, of certain situations that you then have to play out, and since I've become a parent, I've played lots of parents having to go through horrible things, and it's, uh, 
sort of easy to do to tap into that and you're just uh, having you know you, you you come in and out of it and you're very grateful at the end of it that it isn't actually your reality but um you know part of it is to face face those things and i think all parents do in the darker moments Thank you very much. my pleasure hi I'm extremely humbled <laughs> by your disembodied head. No, no. <laughs> no, what, 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 what are you going to look like? Oh. Okay. In which movie? I'm sorry? In which movie? Thelma and Oh, Thelma and Louise. Okay. I thought you might go for Benjamin Button. <laughs> oh, which part? Now the end, of course. People are telling you that? <laughs> point, point them out. I want to know. <laughs> oh, all the fat ones. Okay. <laughs> uh, other than that, uh, what's something like awesome that happens with your character in the last two seasons that I can like, look forward to? <laughs> so you want me to ruin it for you? <laughs> I won't ruin it. I, I'll elliptically. Uh, the last two seasons, almost everything happens to him. I mean, he, uh, he foregoes his... Viper, his uniform, his battle star, twice. Um, uh, ends up in a courtroom uh, at odds with the president. Um, uh, what else does he do? Oh, well, you know, he loses a wife, uh, carelessness. Uh, then loses a, the would-be wife um, through no fault of his own because she doesn't actually exist. Well, and he's a Cylon, sorry. <laughs> 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 nice. <laughs> Hello again. Hello again. Good to see you. Um, first off, I'd like to thank you again for coming here. Um, and having had met you down at your booth, uh, you are literally one of the most genuine people I've met. Uh, which is really, yeah, yeah. Sure. Thank you. Um, super humble. Just a great guy. So, um, my question for you is Was there a character when you were watching? you know, the show or going through it that, I mean, I know you're a little biased towards Leah Dama, but maybe someone else that you, uh, that you really enjoyed. Uh, yeah, almost everybody, but the, the actor that I always single out um, is, is Michael Hogan, who played Colonel Ty. Um, <laughs> Michael is, he's one of these guys where, you know, um, directors occasionally would apologize for getting us to do another take or to do something again, and he would go, you kidding me? I'm an actor. This is what I do. I love it. I love it. Let's do. Let's do more. Let's do. No, let's do this again. And he, he, he was just. Um, you know, he's a very well respected stage actor in Canada. That was a terrible impression of Michael Hogan, which I've never tried to do before. I apologize. <laughs> but he's um, he's a wonderful, wonderful actor that would say things like, you know, his character's an alcoholic, and he he said I wanted to do. Um, how did he put it? Um, he wanted to honor the addiction or something like that. He, 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 he doesn't view human people as, as problems. He sort of venerates their flaws. 
and treats them with respect. And he, he brought such that, that erect sort of backbone and spine that that character is desperately trying to hold on to despite being a completely broken man all the way through from beginning to end and all the awful things that happened to him. And, and that desperate clenched jaw dignity that he's trying to hold on to, I just thought was fantastic. And then, of course, there's the laugh, the ha, 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 sort of halfway between Count, Count Dracula on Sesame Street. I can't even remember. It's been so long since I watched it, but that laugh just cracked us all up every time he did it. It read through whenever it was. I, and uh, he's a lovely man. He's married to a lovely lady, and um, yeah, great people. And it's a role that you know could have been a nothing role. The, the the best friend of the commander, who you know is slightly a stickler for military form, and you know, but he turned it into something truly, truly sublime. I thought wonderful actor. Absolutely. Yeah, more and more as it went on, um, you know, we, we all became very good friends and we respected each other and there was no sense in which writers felt that we were sort of uh, trampling on their toes when we had ideas. And um, yeah, there were many, there were many, many moments where, uh, I, you know, I would question things. The, the, the transitions, Lee had so many transitions and I was just making sure each transition was right. They would ask me, do you feel that the lawyer thing, the politician thing is interesting? And I would say, yes, for this reason, this reason, this reason. And, and I suppose the biggest, the biggest practical input that I ever had was that speech, the lawyer's sort of, uh, whatever it was, ten, eight minutes on the stand uh, in, the end of, in the end of season three. Oh, cool. Um, and Mark Verheiden wrote this lovely speech, which was maybe 30 lines long. It wasn't that long. And because I've been living this, and it was a fight with the writers, because I, I, I did feel Lee, because he's sort of an old-fashioned kind of hero, if he is a hero, and Starbucks, the much more Han Solo hero that everyone seems to love these days, the sort of disrespecter of authority. Uh, Lee's very much, he, yeah, he has issues with authority, but he, he doesn't, he doesn't stick his neck on the line in a nephew kind of a way. It's more of a sort of deferential. He works his way through it very much meticulously. And that's not so sort of lusted after these days in terms of our hero worship. So I was always fighting his corner. And then this opportunity came in this courtroom to defend the character that he despises the most, just to, show, just to sort of make the point that we're all stuck in this imperfect world, all trying to make our best, but we're all flawed, we're all screwed, we've all done things that are terrible, and it's not acceptable to make some one person a scapegoat and the bogeyman to make us all, the rest of us, feel good. And I, I, I felt so passionately about this speech, and uh, I said, look, I, this, this, what Mark's done is very writerly and elusive, but I feel like really hammering it here. I feel like this is the character, he can hold it in no more, and he's gonna tell everyone what he really thinks. Um, so I, I, I went away and I came up with ideas and I wrote it and Michael Ryman, the director, said just, you know, just, just surprise us, just, just say what, whatever it is you want to say. So the, the, the back sort of 60% of what ended up on screen was, was me and uh, there were moments like that and uh, the writers, the producers, the directors were really encouraging and um, it all stayed in there, which is a, incredible in television to, Speech started, turn the page, speech still going, turn the page, speech still going, turn the page, speech still going. I've never seen that in a television script before. It disobeys every rule of an audience's attention span. 
And uh, it, it, it sort of worked. And uh, that was just an instance where, you know, we really could get involved. And Ron Moore and his team were such good writers that they trusted themselves to encourage our involvement and to trust themselves to edit it when it was uh, positive and, you know, and, and not use it when it was negative. So it was, um, it was a great thing. Thank you. Thank you. Hi there. That's a great question. Um, oh, I, yeah, there were little mini moments. Um, when I first got the script, I sort of squeezed my butt cheeks together and went, no, wh why? And then I read the script and I couldn't, and I was told I was going up for this character Apollo and I couldn't find him. I saw this Lee, this Cara, and I was like, there's no Apollo, uh, wait a minute. And then he was in a speech, Apollo, Apollo, somebody shouting, and it was a Kara character saying, so I couldn't quite work out what my memory of Galactica was in relation to this thing, and my memory was very hazy. I remembered the capes and the boots and the, the, three, the three buttons on the joystick and the, the, the zooming out of that triangle and into space. I remembered all that, but I, I didn't really remember the dynamic um, of, of the characters. So I, I thought, look, this is a gig. It's a good gig. They're paying me half decently. It's four hours. We'll go and have fun. We'll see what it's like. And, you know, I've got nothing else to do. So off, off we went. And then they cast Eddie and Mary. And um, the sets were amazing. We did this boot camp. Suddenly things started slotting in. And Eddie in particular sort of, I remember the first day we went to the sets, he walked in. And we were all there, all the cast. And, and the, the, the designer, the artistic director was very proudly showing us, like, you know, this is the um, uh, CIC. God, I can't even remember names like CIC anymore. It's been that long ago. And then he would go, we're going to F this up, right? All of this, we're going to make, knock the edges off that, dirty on the walls, make everything dented. I want to I mess this whole thing up. This is an old battle star. It's not a new battle star. And when you have someone with that kind of conviction, I'm sure the uh, Richard Hudelin, who's a wonderful designer, was going to do that anyway. But it was just that sense of which everyone was involved and Eddie was really passionate. He wasn't, because I thought, okay, these Oscar-nominated actors are going to be up here, Vancouver, doing sci-fi, you know, sort of waiting till they could go home in the evening and get out of this, you know, goofiness and go back to their prestigious work elsewhere. Uh, it was not the case. They took it so seriously. Eddie said, Eddie said to me, I'm going to watch every daily. <laughs> every scene you are in, I'm watching you. <laughs> and I thought I was going to get fired anyway, because here was I, a white-skinned, blue-eyed, Irish, uh, British um, boy trying to play his barrio son. And I thought, oh, I am so fired. And then I heard... Then I heard that Eddie had an actor son called Bodie, and I was like, and he's coming to Vancouver. I thought, it's done. It's already been done. <laughs> he's had a word. They've looked at this camera tests. They've gone, uh, uh, not going to work. Let's lose the uh, guy with no film credits. Um, so I was terrified of Eddie, and he was like, you got to be in the accent all the time. <laughs> all the time. And I was like, okay, I'll try. I mean, okay, I'll try. But... Um, <laughs> And I, I can't do it. I can't do it all day. I can't just turn it on. So, I, so um, yeah, it was, it was, 
at that point, you started taking it seriously, and there were scenes with Eddie, and Michael Reimer's a very independent film kind of guy. I'd never done television where the actors were invited to talk to the director about what worked and what didn't, and what their opinion of the script was. I'd never counted that before. Um, so, you know, your expectations lift. Then it airs, it does spectacular numbers, you get excited, after all the death threats, and like, you've changed Starbuck into a girl, and how dare you trample on the greatest piece of art the late 70s ever gave the world. Um, <laughs> And all your friends emailing you all this stuff, saying, you're dead, man. You're so in trouble. I don't know what you're doing over there, but watch out. Your back has a big target on it. Um, and, you know, and that whole thing, I was paranoid. So we get through the miniseries. It does spectacular numbers. And then they don't pick it up for like three months, right until the deadline. Um, so I was out to dinner um, in London. Uh, and it was uh, 8 o'clock London time. So what's that, 4 in the morning? Uh, no. Uh, yeah, something like that. For uh, 1 p.m. in L.A. So they're getting to the end of a Friday afternoon where they have to pick us up. And I was with my, my wife and her sister-in-law and her fiancé, and it's like, well, it looks like uh, that big opportunity in America didn't wash out anyway, blah, blah, blah. Go home, have a few glasses of wine. Go home, head on the pillow, doing that slightly drunken spinning room thing. And then suddenly the phone, the phone rings, and it's my agent in L.A. saying, you know, you're picked up. And I was like, oh, okay, that's cool not knowing what to expect, go to season one, suddenly meet Eddie house hunting. I was in a, in a little house and I walked out, really like this house, walked out and there's Eddie and I'm like, oh shit, not him. <laughs> and I was like, hello, Mr. Ron. And he was like, hey, we're a hit. And he gives me this big hug and I'm like, where did this guy come from? What did you do with the scary man? Um, and then, and then as we started the season, and things that I've, I've already said, the monotheism against the polytheism, and just little moments when you realize this was special. And then people in the press, it was really the people in the press, who, um, you know, Variety, um, Rolling Stone, um, Time Magazine, just saying that this was the, uh, the best unknown show on TV. And you suddenly just went, oh my God, I'm in one of those shows that everyone's talking about. So say we all, so say we all. And it got better and better. We got given a Peabody, we got all these awards. We didn't get you know, Emmys and everyone's going on about, oh, you didn't get any Emmys. Well, you didn't expect to get any Emmys, but we, we, we were really talked about and people were using the word frack and there were articles about it. And it, I've never been in something that really sort of, especially in this country, really captured a feeling. And you know, we were at war, newly at war in Iraq and 9-11 and all this stuff that was really close to all of our hearts. Um, and, and we were portraying it without being literal. And it, it made it sing. And um, people really responded to that. It was the most exciting you know, working period of my life. And it got better every season. Um, it really did. I have one more question. Please. Uh, the boxing, the boxing one. Yeah, yeah. That was my favorite episode. Yeah. Asked how many punches actually got burned. <laughs> well, the, the the fight that Tamo and I did, because Tamo's a a pretty accomplished martial artist, um, and I'd never boxed before Battlestar, but I'd done a lot of boxing training with uh, Alex Pornovic for the season one with Eddie and I sparring. We'd go every week for a couple of hours and do some. I got really into it, and so Tamo and I were we didn't pull any punches. It was. We were hitting each other, and um, you know he's a big guy, and I'm I, I'm, I, I like that whole physical side of things. Um, so so that, that that fight, you know, we weren't trying to knock each other out or anything, but every punch landed. It made a noise, you know, it made that poof noise that 
the air coming out of gloves thing every every single punch we knew when they were coming so you, you know you sort of tense up or whatever it is and if it was to the face it was pulled slightly but we, we, we made contact every single time which was really fun and you were presenting it to everybody else because we were all in that room and everyone got their chance you know to go up there and this is my fight it was like being at drama school fight night we had at lambda when i was at drama school where everyone ah oh, my fighters with two swords and a saber and watch this twiddly bit you know and we had a whole audience there and we got given certificates at the end of it it was a bit like that and we all, oh, that was brilliant, you know, and everyone got up and did their bit. But I, I really enjoyed fighting with Tamo because, he, you know, he really knows what he's doing and you can really, you know, it's two guys. So I don't, I'm not, you, with all due respect to, to, to Katie, who's a tough, tough girl and very physical, you know, the last thing I wanted to do was hit Katie so it hurt her or so you, you cut her or whatever. But with Tamo, I didn't care. So <laughs> it would only improve his looks. So, um... <laughs> So that was a lot of fun. It was a great episode. It really was. You know, another one, an unusual episode that you don't get too often in TV shows, but we, we could do anything we wanted. Thank you. Yeah. Hey, it's Maggie. It's Maggie, everyone. Maggie's going to be a surgeon, everyone. I'm going to play a surgeon, everyone. Come on, Maggie. I'd love to, I'd love to, to the future, yeah. Um, I, I, I've just uh, been lucky enough to get picked up on a, on a series for David E. Kelly called Monday Mornings, uh, which Sanjay Gupta's novel, uh, which is based on Sanjay Gupta's novel, uh, Monday Mornings of the same title. And it is set in a teaching hospital about a bunch of surgeons. I play a neurosurgeon, super hotshot neurosurgeon, 37 years old, Californian surfer kind of guy, loner. Um, <laughs> Um, with long hair and a shaggy beard, kind of. And um, he, uh, the, the, the basic core element of the show is it's based on a thing called morbidity and mortality. Um, and many of you will know what that is, but for those of you who don't, it's a kind of um, in-house surgeons getting together in a hospital to haul over the coals anybody who's lost someone on the table in the previous week or uh, adversely had adverse effects on someone through a surgical procedure going wrong. And the surgeons basically hold each other to account so that they can all learn from mistakes, uh, as you know, we should all do in life and not be sort of defensive about those mistakes. But surgeons being the very ambitious, and especially neurosurgeons, sort of quite arrogant, best of the best, they have a Viper pilot sort of mentality about them, actually. And they have a reputation for you know, for, for being slightly full of themselves. Uh, they, they, view, they view it as an opportunity sometimes for one-upmanship and to settle scores and to be seen as more prominent than the others within the room. So there's a kind of David Kelly mini kangaroo courtroom drama within the, the, the medical theatre of the operating theatre. Um, wonderful cast, Ving Rhames, Alfred Molina, Bill Irwin, Jennifer Finnegan, Sorry Rao, Rao, um, and, and others. Um, and uh, I'm really excited by it. I, it's it. The, the network will love it, and we'll see, we'll see how it goes. But it'll be on TNT in the winter. And uh, I had to do lots of research. I got to see a brain tumor removed from some poor soul's head for eight hours at UCLA, which was truly awe-inspiring and every bit as exciting as flying with the Blue Angels, which is what I did when I did Battlestar Galactica. So I've gone from sort of to... And, um, yeah, I'm thrilled about it. Thanks, Maggie. Your new show sounds very interesting. It is, I promise, I promise. I, I, first of all, I gotta say, with all sincerity and without any hyperbole whatsoever, Battlestar Galactica, best show ever. Wow, wow. Any genre, any channel, love it. Writing and acting, 
Wow. Silence, the writing and acting, and since you're an actor, I'll ask you about the acting. I was going to ask you about Eddie, but you, you told a few Eddie stories, and I love it. I mean, feel free to keep it coming. Yeah. But, um, I would change it up and, and ask you about your relationship both on screen and off screen with Mary, because you guys had said, you know, sometimes you were on her side, sometimes yeah. it was against her. Uh, I'm curious to know, since she was, you know, one of the two big movie stars, and it's it's really a, a shame that she or Eddie or anybody from that show never won an Emmy for Best Actor. That's absolutely ridiculous. But um, tell me, I, I mean, what her energy was like, she, she's so convincing in her role. She is, she is probably the single most talented actor I've ever worked with. Um, she's, she's an extraordinary lady. She's so... She, 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 she operates very near the surface. Even just as a human being, you can see her. She's sort of fizzing right beneath the surface. And she's immensely warm-hearted. She's, you know, she's very spiritual. She's, she's very... Uh, she, she meditates. She's very in touch. She's kind of... She's got this cool energy about her. Um, but the thing about Mary is I, I, I'd watch her do certain takes, um, very emotional scenes. There's one where she, I think, is burning, or trying to burn the, the I can't even remember what it's called, the Book of Kobol, I think, um, the Bible uh, of this world. And for her, this book has been everything that she's, she's been following. You know, she believes that she's following some message in this book, and she realizes it's a bunch of hocus, and she's burning it. And I just remember her watching behind the monitor, and take one, she was in pieces, obliterated as she's, you know, burning this tears flying over. Take two, 10% less. Take three, 10% less than that. I mean, just in perfect increments, entirely honest, There's not an ounce of fakery, and Mary's never needed a tear stick or any help to do it. She just, all the gradients so that the director will have every single choice. And yet sometimes she's so canny that she knows not to give too many choices to an editor or a director because they'll take the ones that she's least maybe happy with. But um, so she is the most talented actress that I've probably worked with. And then she's also the most maternal, warm, empowering, lovely lady until you play a character that has to cross her. And then for those, for those hours on set, for that day, she's formidable. Like when I had to spar with her in the quorum, and I, w I was sensing that she'd lost the plot a bit and, as a character. And, um, you know, giving her a hard time and asking her the Prime Minister's type questions that we have in England where everyone guffaws and hears hear and tells you to shut up. Um, suddenly, because we were free to sort of go off script a bit, and I would. And if I did, it was daggers. You know, daggers would be back. Like, how dare you? I, do you know how much I have been there for you over the last four years? This is subtext all flying at me. And... Suddenly, she unloads with like the best response you could ever, and you just, okay, I don't, I don't want to piss her off too much, <laughs> as Jamie, as Lee, as anyone. So she, you know, and, and that's why she's a wonderful actress, very, very tender, but got a steel in her, which is, which is something else. And James Callis always used to tell me this as Baltar because he was clashing with her the whole time. She's going, hey, Mary, really nice, but I tell you what, whew, you don't have, no, you don't know the half of it. You don't know the half of it. All day long is a war, and you know, she, she. She is that um, committed to what she does. Are you familiar at all with the white cage fruit from the American version of The Office? I, I'm, I forgive me, not. I'm not. Uh, quite a battle star oh, yes, is that Rain Wilson's character? Yes, it is. Yeah, I've met Rain, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he's great. He's so talented. Thanks. Hey, Jamie. Uh, Jamie, sorry. Um, I just saw an ad on the BBC America the 
other day promoting you, and I just wondered if you knew in advance, uh, or if you could have been seen it. Well, the Bamba Broadcasting Corporation yeah. thing. No, I didn't. I didn't know anything about it until I got um, my friend and my my friend and publicist uh, Craig Schneider sent me this link, and I I clicked on it and it just had this <laughs> super long montage, which looked to be an unruly piss take. I thought, <laughs> I thought you know one of you clever people that's handy with the uh, um, Final Cut had just you know mocked this thing up, and I went ha ha ha. Replied to him, and then I was sure enough was watching TV and it came on. <laughs> and at that point I emailed it to my agent in London I emailed it to everyone saying look at this because the BBC to me is like sac sacrosanct right. and to somehow wheedle my initials into its, its sort of uh, titular I acronym I, well sadly in the BBC the real BBC in England I'm not quite as prominent as I am on BBC America so in the colonial outpost I'm a big cheese <laughs> but back on the mothership not so much um <laughs> I was in an episode of Outcasts, and that didn't go very far. So, uh, so I, I'd love to do more for the beat, but um, still, stay in the U.S. Oh no, I'm very happy here. Don't worry, I'm very happy here. But yeah, it was a real. Um, that was a thrill, a real thrill. Hey. The others. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, <laughs> I try not to think too much about heroes because, um, you know, m m my take on heroes is the closer you get to them, the less heroic they are. And, I, I, you know, I think that's true from almost, you know, everyone that we build up in history from, you know, Mother Teresa to Martin Luther King to whoever, JFK, whoever your hero is, you know, you get close enough and you, you see a human being and, and, and they're not perfect. Uh, they have moments of complete resilience and moments that you admire, but they also have moments that you don't. So, uh, you know, as an actor, your job is really to, if you're going to create an interesting hero, um, is to think about the unheroic side of it and trust that the writers and stuff will take care of making you look heroic enough. And it's really to concentrate on the other stuff. Um, and I, I guess that's my whole sort of response, is, is the human side of it. And, you know, with, with playing a cop um, like Matt Devlin, uh, the key to me was um, workplace camaraderie and banter. It wasn't about, you know, the, 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 you know, being brilliant at the job or anything. It was just creating that relationship with your coworker that we all have. That funny, you know, that, that moment in the day where we actually genuinely are the funniest people on the planet for that one second where you think, this is the funnest thing I've ever, and the other guy's making you laugh and you're making them laugh. And, and we all do it all day long without being stand-up comedians and all the rest of it. And so that was the focus of Law and Order, is capturing that sort of joy of working with someone that you really enjoy working with, regardless of what the job is, and trusting that the job and the, you know, the script is going to take care of all that other stuff. So uh, the, 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 more, the more I work, it's those little bits that really excite me, like Monday mornings you know, in all the surgery. It's, it's that sort of black humor that comes with dealing with life and death on a daily basis. And, those, and same with it being a cop or whatever you do. 
you know, you get yourself through the day by trying to make yourself laugh as much as you can. And that's one of the ways that you get yourself through the day. So it's the little human things that, that are important. So, you know, it's only in the cold light of day that you can dwell about things as broad as, you know, what, what makes a convincing hero and all the rest of it. But the most important thing is to be a convincing human being and, and not, to, uh, not to, play the, to play the result, but to, to sort of just be, be, be present in that situation. Yeah, yeah, it's a capture. Yeah. Well, yeah, you put your finger on it. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think, you know, if, if uh, a documentary crew had followed Martin Luther King around every day, you'd have seen the same thing, you know. But we only see the big speeches these days, and you, know, you see the high points, the big rhetoric, and um, it's actually the other things that make him, you know, interesting as, a, as an actor. And when you are an actor, you, you know, you, you latch onto that kind of stuff because that's what really sells a character as a real human being that you want to spend time with. Pleasure. Hello. Hi. That, that's so funny, because that's dead true. Look at that. We did that just for you. That's really scary. <laughs> and, and sort of TARDIS suckers every now and then. Plungers. I should say. Back towards the beginning of the series, uh, when sci-fi back when it had a real name, uh, <laughs> for the crack, this is something good. They did a behind-the-scenes. You don't like Siffy? No. Oh. It, you know, sounds like other children. Anyway, um, <laughs> I just even remember there was a part where uh, James Callis was taking the piss a bit because he got to use his accent and you didn't. And you were talking about how there were certain words that are very hard to say with an American accent that are very much British. And I was wondering if you what, bugger? Yes. <laughs> bugger. <laughs> Doesn't work. No, it really doesn't. No. Well, the, the other the words that are absurd to me, like I, now that I am a fully-fledged American, because I live here now, not just a citizen, so you can't deport me from Arizona, by the way, I'm just saying. <laughs> um, uh, the words that threw me uh, were things like normalcy, which I had never seen before. That's not a word where I come from. <laughs> we, we have a word, and it's normality. Um, so when I would get these words in the script, I'd think they were typos. And the other one was, uh, I'll take it under advisement, which I, I rang David Icke, the producer, to say, what is this drivel, this, I'll take it under advisement. Advisement, what is advisement? I think I can guess, but you want to do your English A-level again. Or oh, you don't do A-levels in this country. Well, it shows. Um, no. No, but the, 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 real, the real point is English is a great language because it's completely anarchic. And, you know, English has ended up as, as expressive as it is because you can um, make up new words uh, all the time. Shakespeare did it endlessly. Um, so any Englishman that sort of gives you a hard time, um, you know, uh, is it, it's very easy to put them back in their place because a lot of the words that we use every day were invented by John Milton and Shakespeare and all the great writers. Um, and Americans have a wonderful turn of phrase. I mean, you know, everyone here always comments about my accent, and that's lovely. But if you went to London, we'd be commenting about yours. There was a lady from Louisiana today who I could listen to all day long. She had, it was incredible. Are you here, by the way? She's gone. She's gone back to Louisiana. Fair enough. <laughs> probably, probably deported. <laughs> oh, got uh, time for just a couple more questions, unfortunately. Okay, I'll try and get through these. 
That's a great question, because she's entirely responsible for why I'm here. She cast me as the Wicked Witch of the, of the West when I was five. <laughs> she greened me up, turned me into a girl, and uh, trotted me out on stage in a production at the American Cathedral in Paris. And as a result of that, I just had this default thing of I would try and audition for school plays, which I would never have done, because it's just not me. So she's entirely responsible. She was an actress herself, and um, she's very proud of me, and I'm very grateful to her. My pleasure. Hi. Hi. I was uh, wondering if you have ever had any scary fan moments. Have anybody ever throw themselves at you? <laughs> I've, 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 I've signed a, a wedding cake um, for a couple who just got engaged, which I felt really wrong about. Um, that was weird, with icing. Um, yeah, I've been sent some things which, I don't know, are sort of odd to send. And there's been some pretty scary things too, I've got to be honest, um, which I won't dwell on too much. But, um, you know, there, there is a, there, you guys are great, like 99.999%, but there's the odd kooky point zero 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 one that uh, they try and have an effect on your life in whatever way they can, which is not always positive. But, you know, with the world in which we live, I'm not on Twitter, I'm not on Facebook, I'm not on any of those things. Actually, funny story, I've got to, I've got to tell this story. Um, I got this, um, uh, and the reason why I'm not on those things is, is to sort of, because I'm, I'm quite a private person, and I, I you know, I, I love meeting you guys when it's face-to-face, -face, but the internet world is, it's a scary place to be very prominent, I think. Um, but the good side of it is uh, my wife got a tweet the other night from a friend, an old school friend of mine called Nick, Nick John, and uh, she said, this guy's contacted you. My wife's never heard of him. She said, he says he, you'll know him. Then I got an email from my agent in London saying, I just got an email from this guy who lives in Israel who's going to be in Phoenix and he needs to see you to have dinner. And it was Nick John. I said, yes, I actually do know who Nick is. So I, I, was, I arranged to meet him here. And then Nick said to me that two weeks ago he was uh, Googling, Googling, Googleizing, which is a Bradley Walsh word, <laughs> fracking Googleizer. Um, <laughs> he was looking up old school friends and seeing what had become of them. One of, one of my great friends who became a rugby player, he was, he was wondering, oh, I wonder if he ever became a rugby player. And he suddenly thought, what about Jamie Sinjin Bamber Griffith, which is my full name? And he, he put my name in, and he had a heart attack. Because he watched Battlestar for five seasons and did not even question for one second if he'd ever seen that guy before or sat next to him in English classes for four years. And he knew my full name, Jamie Sinjin Bamba Griffith, and the title Jamie Bamba. It never made him think. And he had this moment, he went, oh my God. He was in a room with some friends. He said, oh, I've just, no, this is too weird. I... You know Apollo? I know him. I sat next to him for four years. We were friends. We went to the same university. And then his friend, who was in the same room, said, you're going to Phoenix next week, aren't you? He said, yeah. He said, Jamie's going to be there at a convention. He said, I'm going to a convention in Phoenix. Yeah. He's going to be staying at the Hyatt opposite you in the show. So I had dinner with Nick last night, and a week ago, he had no idea who I was. And we just sat in a cab last night and roared with laughter. I mean, it's so uncanny. Well, I mean, the chances of that. So that's, you know, that's the wonderful thing that can happen about, you know, all this. So thank you for the question. Let's try and, thank you. Let's try and get these last ones done. I'm going to set up some, if anybody does want pictures, I'm going to throw them down here and I'll be ready to sign them at the end because this is the last. Okay, cool. Get on your knees, son. <laughs> we'll do it here. And, uh... Okay, question, go. 
and Richard Gibbs. Don't forget Richard Gibbs, who actually composed the music in the miniseries. Um, often, often forgotten, but Richard Gibbs really invented the sound and Bear did extraordinary things with it, but Richard Gibbs too. Round of applause. Ah, oh, yeah, so many. The, the, the thing at the end of season one, the, the, is it Michael Nyman, the sort of play on that? It's like a piano refrain that goes through the whole... The, the Watchtower thing just gives me goosebumps. I, I actually work out a lot to um, the Battlestar music. It's on my iPod. You know, and I'm sort of running along to the Viper fight music, and I, you know, it's just, don't, it's like, it's like my Rocky. So um, the Tycho drums have got me through a lot of tough slogs up uh, very sweaty hills. So uh, no, I, I, I think the music is one of the very, very, very strongest things about our show, and the cinematography. The amazing pull zooms, crash zooms, the camera work, the anarchy that the camera crew lived you know, created, and they were all doing things that nobody else knew, and then the editors would discover this footage, and just go, oh my God, they were so talented. Thank you. Yeah. Um, well, if, if any of you, yeah, my friend in green. Oh, he can't hear me. That's beautiful. Um, I thought the ending was utterly sublime. I, I just thought, um, you know, I, I knew roughly what Ron was going to do because we'd had dinner and uh, I'd actually read a Richard Dawkins book um, about evolution and he was talking about this jump 50,000 years in the past where cave art appears, where all sorts of sort of extraordinarily detailed utensils appear, and there seems to be, and everyone's, people have surmised in the past, you know, what the hell happened? Did aliens come down and show them how to do all this stuff? And of course, the, the, the scientific answer is that, you know, language really developed, and we were able to share and communicate in a very complex way, rather than demonstrating and learning by, by imitation. Um, uh, so, I, I, I'm not taking credit for this, I, I just happened to mention this over dinner and Ron was, you know, I could see this look in his eye and he'd been thinking about the ending, he always knew he had it in mind and I love the idea that the thing is in the past because everyone says, you know, you've played a character from the future and you've played one in the past in Hornblow. I said, no, I played one in the past and really in the past. Um, so for me, the whole thing about all of this has happened before and all of this happened again, he's still got his covered as ears, bless him. Now we're still going. Cover them. <laughs> um, I just thought it was sublime and, 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 and taking the characters back to just before the miniseries happened. You know, Kate taking Lee and Kara and, and um, Zach back to before all that shenanigans happened and, and Baltar back and all the characters back and just... And then you understand the point of meaning of journey, you know, beginnings and ends and how people go through amazing, amazing... Yeah, convoluted, day in, day out, uh, tortuous journeys, but actually they don't change. They're the same people. Um, wiser, maybe, maybe not. Um, I just thought it was beautiful. Um, you know, we've, there are all sorts of schools of ending TV shows from the sort of the false ending to the, the new departure to the kill everyone to the, you know, whatever it is. And I thought Ron came up with a really just a delightful way of doing it, which is meditative. And I thought the whole thing was kind of meditative. And I thought the Starbuck disappearing thing was just beautiful. I mean, she died. We all saw her die. But 
she didn't die because people don't die when you um, when they affect you when they live in your heart and when you have shared so much with them as long as someone is breathing that person lives and you know that's kind of what was happening I think and we don't go into it too in too much detail it's very emotional for us at the time and uh, I was very proud of it and I know a lot of people don't like it but that's fine that's absolutely fine because you know you make these things and, and it is it's this show more than any other it's it's a dialogue and you guys you know, make noises back, we make noises forward, and, you know, I, I respect disagreement. It's great. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Right, final question. And since you just talked about the end of the show, it's really difficult to follow that, but you've blown my mind twice in two days. You just said how much you enjoyed the Tycho drums when you were on the plane. Yeah. You, you do? Yeah. Oh, awesome. Wow. Wow. How cool. cool. Yes. And you're going to do it? Yes, we've started practicing some. Oh, fantastic. Is it fun to play? Oh, it's awesome to play. Great. <laughs> but my question was you were very kind enough to exchange a few words with me yesterday, and you said something that really intrigued me about the, um, uh, the BBC series Outcast. Oh, yeah. And you said you, had, you actually had a choice as to whether to play a one time character or a recurring character in the series. Well, well, no, I wasn't presented with a choice. I, but I, I got a lovely letter from Jane Featherstone, who's the head of um, Kudos uh, Television, whose, whose show it was, and who, who, who does Law and Order, who says, you know, we've got this wonderful script. We're very excited about it. We'd love you, we'd love you to be in it. And she didn't actually specify which character it was to play. So I read the script, and um, just presumed I was meant to play this character called Mitchell, who just wanders in with this sort of heroic walk and seems to be the hero of the piece, but a bit. A bit, and I thought he was the hero of the piece, to be honest. I read this first script and I thought, oh, well, this guy's going somewhere. He's got an attitude. He's got a problem with authority. He doesn't like where this place is going and he's going to change it. And I thought that's quintessentially what, you know, the character that carries the sort of drama does. He's got a problem with the, with the structure on this planet. And the planet, it all looks to be very cozy and everyone's got the right ideals, but there's something rotten uh, in the heart of it. And uh, so I was just drawn to him and I presumed that that's who they were offering. And then, of course, the conversation got further, and they said, no, name the other character. And I was like, ah, oh. oh my gosh. And I, I, it was a real shock to me. So I just, I just suggested to them, I said, look, I'll be honest, South Africa, I've got a young family. I'm not about to relocate them all to South Africa. Um, I, I, so I feel I have to turn this down. But on the other hand, I'm very grateful. And if I could help in any way, um, one way might be to play this other role, which would you know, die at the end of the first episode. Um, but I love the role, and uh, I didn't hear anything for about three months. I got on the plane to, to LA to try and um, find some work, stayed with Eddie Olmos, and uh, as I landed in LA, I got this message from my agent saying, yes, they've offered you, Mitchell, can you get on a plane to South Africa? I was like, <laughs> well, not what I was expecting, but I, I, I loved it. I thought Ben had written a lovely script. I mean, there were too many similarities with Battlestar for me to really commit to it, because I'm so proud of Battlestar. I didn't want to do anything that might seem opportunistic or, or, or maybe, you know, not as good or whatever. But I, I thought they did a great job and I loved, loved working with Barat and the cast and Liam Cunningham and Hermione and everyone. So yeah, it was a great thing and I, and I enjoyed it. And it, it earned me the Bamba Broadcasting Corporation wings because without the third program on the air at the same time, I don't think they'd have bothered. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you all. That's the end of our time. Thank you for coming. Thank you to Mr. Bammer. And, uh,
Uh, listen, thank you so much because these, th these weeks for me are made by my little chats with you guys. I really appreciate your enthusiasm meeting you all. And if anybody didn't get time to come and see me downstairs, please come and see me now and we'll rectify that. Love you all. I'd love to. If